The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Uh, I believe last week uh, you knew I was away at, at a retreat. This week Lewis is away celebrating his anniversary. That's why he's not here. Um, and Dash told you about a special friend that I met. Um, so I've got a photo of uh, my good friend, um, Eric, uh, who, who I met at the retreat, Eric the Echidna. I, I don't know if it's a, a male or a female. I didn't get that close to kind of examine anything, but I'm just kind of speculating that it was a boy. Um, but yeah, it was very, very cute. Um, it was a great, great retreat and uh, yeah, really had a, a wonderful, refreshing time. And I had the opportunity to really think about some of the things we're going to be talking about today um, within the context of the retreat, and I'll share a bit more as I go. So this new series we're looking at, we're calling it Growing In. Uh, As you saw from that video, one of the key focus areas in the second half of the book particularly is that whole idea of growth. Um, And that's been our, our theme for this year. And so we're really wanting to engage in this idea of how can we grow um, as the people of God. And as we read through these letters, um, you'll find um, that Paul had a very, very high esteem of the Thessalonian church. He thought very, very highly of them. Um, and we see that because three times he thanks God for them, uh, something he doesn't really do in many of his other letters. Normally he begins with a thank you, but throughout this letter in, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, chapter 3 verse 9 he's thanking God for them the other significant difference is that Paul unlike many of his other New Testament letters does not introduce himself as Paul the Apostle here he's just Paul Um, and as uh, the video pointed out there's so much sense of Paul having a very intimate familial relationship with this church Um, now we all know that no church is perfect and uh, often people say that when people are talking about different churches. They say, oh yeah, every church is kind of broken and not perfect. But we also know that there are some churches that are more in line with or closer to the New Testament ideal of what a church ought to be. Um, and some churches do th- that church thing better in light of what the scriptures teach about how a church ought to be. And, it, and the impression we get from 1 Thessalonians is this is one of those churches in Paul's mind that they get it. And they're a lot more aligned with New Testament ideals of how a church ought to be than maybe some of the other churches. And so we want to dig into this book and kind of ask ourselves this question, what made them a great church? And what can we learn from them that will help us to grow more and more in what God wants for us as a church? So that we too can be a church that reflects the New Testament ideals of what a church ought to be. Um, What values, what attitudes, what behaviors did they have that we need to grow in so that we can be more like the community of faith that God wants us to be? So I encourage you as we journey for about the next seven weeks, get into this book. It's a short book, five chapters. You can read it several times over and to help you uh, in our weekly e-newsletter, we'll even give you the passage that we're going to be preaching on the following Sunday. So you can come pre-read and pre-prepared and having thought about and reflected uh, in what's going on in in this passage. So that's a bit of a, a snapshot uh, of where we're going over these next few weeks. Um, just some key features. Again, look, the video was really helpful to give you a picture of the background of this book. Um, and so just some of the key features that I want to mention before we kind of launch into the passages this morning. Uh, 
one of the main themes that comes out is living in the light of the return of Jesus. And you'll see this throughout this book, that every chapter, Paul intentionally ends with a statement about the coming of Jesus Christ. And he links every one of the moral and ethical teachings he wants them to grab a hold of to the second coming of Jesus. So it's just a main thing. Um, like I mentioned, it's a, this is a letter from a, a spiritual father to his children. Uh, there's such intimacy and affection in the way that Paul is writing this letter. Um, he clearly sees this community as a family. The word Adelphoi, which is interpreted brothers and sisters in the older versions, it just says brothers, is used 16 times in five chapters. That, that's huge. And seven times in the second letter. So he's really wanting to encourage them to be this family of believers. So that's kind of some key features for us to keep in mind as we journey through. So if, you want, uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn in 1 Thessalonians. And I encourage you, bring your Bible so you can write notes, uh, underline things, make notes as we're going, highlight parts. Nothing like text to work with. Um, and if you've got a Bible app that allows you to do all of that, awesome, use that as well. I encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there's a couple of extra copies out there. Feel free to get up and grab one because we're going to be diving deep into some text in this series. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. See, no apostle. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us, from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great letter. Thank you for this great church and the example and the model they are to us and how their faith and their love and their hope encourages us to be more like them because they are more like the church you intended your people to be. And so we pray as we journey through this series and as we come around your word today that you'll inspire us, challenge us, and grow us into the image that you have for us as your people. We pray. In Jesus' name. So this morning, uh, our topic and our theme is growing in identity. Growing in identity. And we're going to consider a whole bunch of things that we can grow in. But these first 10 verses, Paul is really telling us a lot about this church and who they were and, and what they were characterized by. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot that we can glean in how we can grow as God's people in knowing more and more securely who we are in God. 
um, there's a whole bunch of thinking about how, we, how people shape identity. Um, and usually there, there's thinking that there are two main sources of how identity is formed. If you come from a more traditional background that many of us come from, uh, identity, uh, a lot of it is formed by the culture around us, by our family of origin. Um, we're, we're told that family is more important than our own individual desires and wants and wishes. A, a classic commentary on the cultural tension between these two ideas of um, identity formation is um, crazy rich Asians. Um, that, that tension between the family and then the other is more the Western idea, which is individualistic. In our culture, our identity is formed by what we want and what's good for us and our happiness and our future. And, and we're told things like whatever you want, whatever you desire, whatever feels right to you, whatever your moral code is, whatever you think is right, then that's your identity. You can be whoever you want to be. You can be a man, you can be a woman, you can be an echidna, you can be whatever you want to be. As long as it feels authentic and right for you, well, that's your identity. But the Bible suggests that there's a lot more than that that needs to be said about identity. Because we've been created, if we hold to a biblical worldview, we've been created by God in His image. And there's a lot of our identity that must be shaped by who God says we are. And so that's kind of how we're coming around this. And there's four things I want to highlight for you that Paul brings out in these 10 verses that tells us something about who this church were and stuff that's core to who they are in their identity that we need to embrace and grow in so that we can be more like the people of God that he wants us to be. The first thing is that he's saying here that the, these, these people were the elect of God. He says in verse 4, for we know, in verses 1 to 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. They were a loved people. And that's really important for us to grab a hold of. Now again, you know, the moment you talk about election and predestination, people get uncomfortable and uneasy because of all the things that run around in their head when we say that word. And I want to share with you four things that Paul tells us here about the idea of election and predestination that are really helpful for us to understand how this doctrine works. Because I think there's so much baby that get, gets thrown out with the bathwater when it comes to thinking about election and predestination. And I think we do that to our own peril. So Paul tells them that they were loved by God and chosen. And I think that's a powerful thing for us to grab a hold of. And he tells us these four, four things. One, that this idea of election is based in the love of God. And we need to understand that. Sometimes we think that election and predestination is God sitting up there in a really mean way and sending you to heaven and you to hell. It doesn't work. The Bible never talks about election like that. Every time the Bible talks about election and predestination is within the context of God's love and His grace that none of us deserve and yet he bestows on us. So that's the first thing we really need to understand. He says to them, For we know, brothers, that you are loved by God, then that he has chosen you. We've got to keep that in mind. The, the second thing that is really important for us to grab a hold of with this idea of election, this doctrine of election, is that it's really a statement about God's initiative in salvation. That's, that's what it's saying. That we can't save ourselves. That we are so broken by sin and by our own rebellion and disobedience, that we need God to save us. That's grace. 
That's God taking the initiative. And again, in this passage, he says, look at this, that he has chosen you. How does Paul know? He says, I know that God has chosen you. How does he know that? Well, he answers his own question in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. He says, I know that God has chosen you because I see what God did among you. Through the preaching of the word, I see the way the Holy Spirit moved. I see the deep conviction he brought. I see the way the gospel transformed you. That's how I know that you're the elect. Because God has reached out in his grace and saved you. The third thing that he tells us is that that human responsibility is not something that is separate to election. Like sometimes we think, oh, well, if God has elected and God predestines, then we're just puppets and we don't have any say in that. Well, that's not what Paul says. In these very verses here, he says, you, verse 9, they tell how you turned from idols to serve the living God. They, they, they acted in their faith. He says that you received the word of God. You welcomed the word of God. Their, their human responsibility wasn't nullified because of the election of God. No, they worked together. The fourth thing he says is that election is something that always comes at the end of the process where you can see the fruit and the evidence of that election. He says, look, I, I know that you've been elected by God because your work, verse 3, has produced faith, your labor has prompted love, your endurance that comes from hope in the Lord Jesus, that's all there. I can see the evidence. It's not something that we can determine before who's elect and who's not. It is the fruit of your life, of gospel transformation, of reflecting Christ that says, well, you're the elect. It's after the fact, not before. And here's the thing. See, just because we don't understand something, just because we can't figure out how all of this works, doesn't mean we can discard it. Sometimes we just have to sit with the tension and the uneasiness and go, I don't fully appreciate it, but the Bible teaches it. And you know why? The Bible teaches it because it's an important doctrine. Let me illustrate it for you this way. In Romans 8, who knows verse 28? Most of us, right? Who knows 31 to the end? Most of us. What do we leave out? Election. 29 and 30. You see... Without that, 28 means nothing. How can God work for our good in every circumstance? How can we say, what can separate us from the love of God? How can we say, no matter what, height, depth, demons, whatever, nothing will make me fear and step away. I am more than a conqueror. Why? Because we're loved. Because God has chosen us and revealed the gospel to us. And because of that, and as we continue to walk in obedience and submit to the Lordship of Christ, we can stand firm because of that truth. That's what Paul is reminding them of there. That's why he says to them, this is who you are. You're loved. You're chosen. And so in their severe suffering, they can stand firm. The election doctrine gives us so much security. Security to face rejection, security to face persecution, security to face all kinds of things because we're beginning with this core conviction, I am loved. I am loved. You know, this week, Dash, I was reading about a, a story of somebody who was killed in India, 
a 40-year-old father of four, he was beheaded. Only being a Christian for less than a year. It just made me think, how do so many Christians face that reality? Become Christians knowing that that might happen to them. This is why. Because they know they're loved. Because they know that not even death can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is why this is important. Knowing this. How how are we growing in this? How secure are we in the fact that we are loved? That we are chosen? Can we deal with personal rejection? Do we still pursue people's approval to please other people because we're so insecure? How do we deal with our lack when we don't get what we want, when our life is a shambles and a mess, it's coming back to this core identity. God, it doesn't matter sometimes. As hard as those things are, I want to be healed, but I'm not. I want to be married, but I'm not. I want to have more friends, but I don't. I want to have a better job, but I don't. All of that. But God, I am secure. I, nothing changes the fact that I know that I know that I'm loved. That's what we got to grow in. The second thing he, he says to them, is that they are a transformed community. That's who they are. They, they used to be idol worshippers. Now they serve the living God. They're completely different. And he says that they, they're characterized by the three Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. And these weren't just theories. They weren't just philosophies. They weren't just theological niceties for them. These things affected the way they lived. Their, their, their faith was producing works of repentance. They, they turned from idols knowing that it might mean rejection and persecution from friends and family. They were loving each other deeply and devote, devotedly. And we'll see that more and more how deeply this community loved each other. They were brothers and sisters. They were family. And their hope, they, they, they were so convinced of the, the return of Jesus that it affected the way they were living in the present. So They were so eagerly looking forward to Jesus that it created some confusion that Paul had to address. But nonetheless, their hope was real and solid and, and, and definite for them. They were a transformed community. Warren Weasby says this in his commentary. The person who claims to be one of God's elect but whose life has not changed is only fooling himself. Those whom God chooses, he changes. This does not mean they are perfect, but they are possessors of a new life that cannot be hidden. How transformed are you? How transformed am I? How, how much does our life reflect Jesus? Are we growing into the image of Christ more and more? Or are we still the way we used to be with our values and our worldview and our decisions and our choices and our behavior and our words like we've always been? Just now with the added tag of I'm a Christian. Paul could not say that about the Thessalonians. They were a radically different community. The third thing that he says is that they were a proclaiming people. This was part of their identity. I love this because Paul brings this idea out so profoundly. They received the word eagerly. They welcomed it, but it didn't just get stuck there. They became transmitters of the word of God as well. And he says here that, verse 7, that they became a model for all believers in, in Macedonia, which is about how they were living their Christian life. They were exemplary. They were encouraging other Christians. As they looked at the Thessalonians, people were inspired and encouraged by these Thessalonian Christians. I wonder if people can say that about your Christianity, my Christianity. 
that they are encouraged in that, in their own walk with Jesus. But not only were they model, they were also a declaring people. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you. That word rang out is like a trumpet call. They were proclaiming this message, not just in their deeds and their life, but in their words. And notice he says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, so not just in their local community, but everywhere. They were proclaimers of this message. And that's the last series we've been doing, Intentional Witness, has been all about that. And we've been so encouraging our connect groups, hearing people sharing about their own experiences of that and how their friends and their family know that they're Christians and they've had opportunities to share their testimony and, their, and that story. And, and that's awesome. And I want to encourage you, let's keep doing that, proclaiming the, the, the truth and the good news of Jesus in our life, in our conduct, in our behavior, but also with our words. And not just locally, but everywhere we go. You know, church growth statistics say that the most powerful evangelistic tool is friends who witness to friends and family that witness to family. It's in the context of personal relationship. Think about your own journey and your own story and the people that profoundly impacted you. A good chance it would be a friend or a family member. Somehow. They were a proclaiming people. Last one, number four. They were a future-oriented people. We've seen that already. They're looking ahead. He ends with this, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. They were eagerly looking forward to the return of Jesus. And as I said, they were so enthusiastic about this that it had created some concerns for them because some of their brothers and sisters had died and they're like oh what does that mean have they missed out on the on the rapture are they going to be a part of it and so Paul has to address that uh, another concern they had because of the intense persecution that they were going through is that oh, have we missed the day of the Lord because things are so bad have we kind of somehow missed it and Paul has to address that error but as a whole, they were so expectant and so eagerly looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Does your Christian experience have that future orientation? Are you driven by eternity? Are you consumed by what is to come? And does that reality of the soon and, and the um, physical and excited return of Jesus govern your choices and values and decisions you're making today? That's how it was for the Thessalonians. And we know how to do this because if we, if we want to lose weight or get healthy or we want to save up for something, that's what we do. We, we set ourselves a goal that's future-oriented and we make decisions in the present on the basis of that reality. That's what the Thessalonians were doing, only it was with Jesus they're like, we were so convinced that Jesus is coming back and it's going to be soon and it's going to be sudden and we're going to get caught up with him and we're going to be with Jesus forever. That's going to be awesome. So we're going to live today in light of that certainty. And it was driving them passionately to endure suffering, to be generous, to care deeply for one another, to live holy lives. That is what growing in our identity of who we are as God's people does. It changes the way you live. So how do we, how do we grow in our identity? How do, we, how do we become more aware of who we are in Christ? Well, in, in verse, um, verse 6, Paul gives us a couple of 
clues here. Verse 6, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's discipleship. That's what he's saying. How do you imitate someone? You, you find a, a Christian who encourages you, who inspires you, who's further along in the journey than you and say, will you disciple me? Will you invest yourself into me? Will you help me to grow? Will you help me to understand what it really means to be a Christian? Because you've been following Jesus a lot longer than me. Will you help me? For it's for those of us who are older in our faith, who have lived longer following Jesus, to find someone younger and say, hey, how about I catch up with you and meet with you and pray with you and we'll study the scriptures together so we can grow together as brothers and as sisters as we imitate Jesus together. That's discipleship. That's how we can grow, to know who we are and how we're supposed to honor God by having others encourage and sharpen and challenge and grow us. The second thing he tells us is that you welcome the message. You welcome the word of God. It's the word of God. This is how you know who you are. If if you're not in this book, if you're not renewing your mind, if you're not soaking yourself in the word of God, then you're always going to be susceptible to the lies of the enemy when he tells you, no, 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 you're like this. You'll be susceptible to the accusations and the condemnation and the guilt and the shame of the enemy because you don't know who you are in Christ. And the way you know that is by filling your heart and filling your mind with this. Whether you read it or you listen to it or you memorize it or you have it on your fridge or however you do, get the word of God in your mind and in your heart so you can grow in your knowledge of who you are in Christ. The last thing he tells us here is that we be imitators, welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. See, it's the Spirit's work. It's got to be the Spirit's work. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, be continually filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit because He's the one that can remind you and show you who you are. It's the Spirit, Jesus said, that reminds you of all that I taught you and how to live. In Romans 8, Paul says, it's the Spirit that helps you cry out from your innermost being, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit that conforms us to the image of Christ. It's the Spirit. And we're a Pentecostal church and we believe in the present power and the present work of the Holy Spirit, not just in tongues, not just in the gifts, but the work of the Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. And He gives us His joy as we know who we are and we live out of the fullness of who we are in Jesus. So open your heart to the Spirit. Take every opportunity to be filled more and more with the Spirit. When we pray for people to be filled with the Spirit on a Sunday or in, uh, in our prayer and worship night, grab a hold of those and say, God, I want more of you. But you don't have to wait for those church opportunities. Every time you're with God, say, God, will you fill me afresh with your Spirit? Because we won't get the revelation of who we are in Christ on our own. You, you, you can't come to salvation on your own and you certainly won't grow in your understanding of who you are on your own. You need the Spirit's revelation. Which is why Paul in Galatians, he rebukes that church and he says, you began so well. You began in the Spirit and then you relied on your flesh. What happened? Continually being filled with the Spirit and His joy and His life and His affirming, truth-speaking voice in our heart that reminds us of who we are in Jesus. As I wrap up, just a couple of concluding questions. For those of us who maybe are still on that journey and we still haven't come to a place of 
committing ourselves to Jesus. Maybe you're here, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been coming for a long time, but you're yet to make that decision to surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, to receive God's forgiveness, to trust in the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Two questions for me to ask you. One, what are you basing your identity on? What are you basing your identity on? Is it on the Western narrative that says, just be who you are, whatever you desire, that's who you are. Whatever you want, however you dis- define yourself, that's who you are. And you can be whatever you want to be. How's that going for you? How satisfied are you with that process of defining your identity? Have you come to the point where you're realizing, I, I just don't think that works anymore? Maybe I want to suggest to you that you hear the gospel answer to that question that our identity is based on this incredible story of God, that he created us to know him and love him and walk in relationship with him. And we rejected that again because we wanted to define our own reality way back in our history. And that brought death and separation from the only one who, can, who knows us for who we can really be. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to, to kind of take our place, to give us a new birth, and a new identity in Christ where we're forgiven and we're brought back into relationship with God and now we, we live out of this image that was always stamped in our heart to be the children of God, sons and daughters in relationship with Him. I encourage you, explore that reality, that identity because I promise you that when you come to that place of recognizing who you were supposed to be and how God created you to be and how you can find that true self in Jesus, it changes everything. Changes everything. Second question, what are you basing your hope on? What are you basing your hope on? Is it for the world to get better? Is it that one day humanity will just get it right? How's that going for you? You know, they say that the dreams and the hope of postmodernity is failing and people are realizing that they've been sold a dream that's a pipe dream. Maybe there's a different place for that hope. For the Thessalonians, their hope of the second coming was based on a historical fact. That was the resurrection of Jesus. That's why their hope was so secure. They were looking ahead because they could look behind and say, that happened and we know that that happened and because that happened, we know that this will that Jesus will come back and he will make everything right and he will restore creation to all that it was meant to be and renew everything and bring us the fullness of life that God always intended for us to have. My friend, that is a better narrative, a better story to peg your hope on. And I hope that again, you will explore that and consider that and decide for yourself which narrative you would prefer to, to stake your hope on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we just sit for this moment in your presence, under the sound of the words that have just gone out from this great letter, I pray, Father, as we've been saying, that your Holy Spirit will come into our thoughts, into our hearts, and bring revelation to us. Speak truth, Holy Spirit, into every heart. Your truth, your word. 
I pray that you will take these words of mine and bring it alive to people. Just take a moment to hear what the Spirit might be saying to you. Father, we pray that you'll be with us as we go. Lord, as we continue this series and as we reflect even today on your word, help us to grow in our identity. Lord, to stand firm in who you say we are. Lord, to remember that we are loved. And Lord, you demonstrated the power and the reality of that love when you sent Jesus, your son, to die for us. Help us to remember how loved we are. Lord, that we are transformed people, renewed by the Spirit of God at work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to grow in the image of Christ. Lord, we are a proclaiming people. May our lives in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our families declare the good news of Jesus as we live in love and faith and hope. And Lord, may we be an expectant, future-oriented people who have set our hearts on the certainty of your son's coming. And may our decisions and choices and values reflect our future hope. Help us, Lord, to love each other as brothers and sisters, to encourage one another that we might be the church you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.